thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Know your rights. Use them responsibly. Lead SA. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. Good morning to you, Chris. Lovely to chat to you. Welcome. Morning. Morning. Thank you for joining us. Now, I have a question for you. Body odor, is that influenced by our surroundings, our diet? What makes one person smell differently? Not necessarily foul, but there's something unique about, about their smell. Uh, both of those things you just mentioned. So if it's very warm, then you are more likely to sweat more. And where body odor comes from is bugs flourishing in your underarm regions and elsewhere. And those bugs dine on the skin cells that we shed and on each other and they need a damp place to do it. So sweat helps them. So the sweatier you are, the more they're going to proliferate. Mm-hmm. And also what you eat can make a difference as well because some foodstuffs contain very, very pungent, usually sulfur-containing chemicals. And these can be further metabolized in the body. And in some cases, they're metabolized and they come out in your wee. In other cases, they come out in sweat. In other cases, they just smell already and they come straight through in both those things. The two examples I'm thinking of, of course, are garlic, which can make pretty much any bit of you smell like garlic, and then asparagus. And there is this phenomenon of when you eat asparagus, people then say, my wee smells really strong afterwards. And in fact, within about 30 minutes of eating asparagus, appearing in your wee will be um, methylmacaptan. And this is the same stuff that skunks squirt out to deter things trying to eat them. And this chemical is metabolized in your body to produce methylmacaptan that comes out of the asparagus. And that also will get into your other tissues and, and make a very subtle change to body odor. So all of the above is the answer. All right. Thank you very much, Chris. Let's go straight to the lines then and hear what Tabo wants to ask. Tabo in Soshanguve. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Chris, I would like to know, why is it when you cut the rep- a reptile's tail, it will keep on wiggling even if the reptile is dead? Hello, Tabo. Uh, Yes, excellent question. And the reason for this is that in many animals, when you cut bits of them off, the bit you're cutting off is not just controlled by the brain, but has its own local nerve control. And so when the brain wants that part of the body to move, it sends a signal to the local control center, which then sends signals to the rest of the muscles and things. And if you therefore cut uh, the control from the brain off, then the part of the body that's then separated just goes under local control and this continues to send signals to the tissues. And because the tissues, although they're deprived of a blood supply, don't die immediately, they will therefore continue to move for a little while. Uh, does Does that make sense? Oh, he's gone. <laughs> I think I think maybe it does make sense. That's why he left so quickly. Okay, all right. Let's go to Beverly. Is it Beverly and Centurion? Hi. Hi. Um, uh, hi, Chris. I'm trying to find out why you use 
less water for more eggs in an electric bo egg boiler? Yeah, I've had this question before, Beverly, and to be honest, I, I haven't got one, and although I've looked at the instructions because someone kindly scanned them and sent them to me, I don't know the answer. Um, I can only think that uh, it's all to do with the amount of space in the in the boiler, because you don't want uh, when the water heats up and everything expands a bit, the water to overflow. But I don't know the answer, so if anyone else has uh, got one of those egg boilers, please help me out. Thank you very much. Okay, that's Beverly in Centurion. Lynn in Benoni, hi. Hi, good morning. Um, if I could, just quickly, my sister has Alzheimer's. My husband died in February, and I told her about his passing. She remembers that, but she does not remember me phoning her every week. She lives in New Zealand. But she Indeed. still remembers that my husband has passed away. Okay. Have you got the drift? Yes, yeah, so what you're, you're wondering why it is that she has one memory but not another. remember my husband passing. Okay, it's a mm. long-term... She remembers him, obviously, from, uh, you know, long ago. Yeah. Um, but she cannot remember me. I phone her every Sunday. She lives in New Zealand, I've said. Uh, but she, she doesn't remember me phoning her, but she remembers me. Indeed. Uh, well, first of all, I'm really sorry to hear mm. that, Lynn. You had to impart that news. But um, what I think is happening is that when people develop Alzheimer's disease, they're losing the integrity or the function of chiefly a part of the brain called the hippocampus. And this structure, which is in your temporal lobe, roughly adjacent to where your ears are on each side of your brain, this has the job of translating the experiences we go through minute to minute into longer-term memories, which are then consolidated or transferred to other bits of the brain. And as the integrity of your hippocampus breaks down, then it becomes less efficient at translating the day-to-day -day or minute-to-minute -minute or second-to-second -second experiences into long-term memory. But sometimes some things happen which make a very big and significant impact on a person and they attend to it much more intensely than they would the second-to-second -second or minute-to-minute. -minute. And those sorts of things do still manage to get consolidated sometimes. And, and I think there's probably an, a degree of emotion attached to this as well, because unlike just saying, oh, I put, um, you know, I put the rubbish out yesterday for, for bin collection or something, which is just not very important, when it's someone who you've known for a long time and they die and there's an emotional attachment and you're upset for them and for the, for the person they're leaving behind, then that probably means that there's a much greater amount of stimulus to store that memory and I therefore suspect that because she's paying a lot more attention to that because it has affected her emotionally there are more triggers to recall that memory than just more mundane things which you would discuss in a friendly chat between you week by week. Thank you very much and uh, who came in first? I think it was Donovan. Donovan in at Glen Vista. Edward I see your call coming to you in a second. Donovan hi. Good morning uh, guys. Um, maybe you can help me with this question. My boy, uh, my little boy is one year old. He had, uh, he's got a brachial plexus injury, which is basically the paralyzed left arm. Um, we went for surgery uh, in December where they transferred one of the ulnar nerves, which is two nerves running to his left hand, and they've taken one and they've actually transferred the nerve onto his bicep. And what we've noticed in the last two days is that he's starting to get a bicep flicker, which means uh, there's some something happening in his bicep. And last night he actually bent his arm. He actually used his bicep. Um, deliberately to, to grab onto a toy. How does the brain um, make that nerve, you know, tell the bicep to move if that nerve is only known to work the hand? 
Um, I, I, we, you know, we find that quite a, quite amazing how this works. Is there, is there anything um, that can tell us how the brain is operating to do this? Hello, Donovan, uh, and congratulations on on what sounds like a wonderful success story. Let's hope it carries mm-hmm. on in that direction. So just for people who are not in the know, the brachial plexus is this big band of nerves that run out from the top of your neck and then go down across your shoulder and make all of the nerves that control your hand and arm. And they are very easily injured. In adults, they're often injured by the arm being torn out from the body. For instance, if you go over the handles of a motorbike, if you're holding onto the handlebars as you're flicked over them, this can tear the brachial plexus. And often in little babies, if they're a bit stuck on the way out, it can sometimes also put pressure on the nerves and damage them. And this means that the structures those nerves would have supplied don't respond properly. And the only way around this is to either hope the nerve regrows, which in some cases it does, although sometimes with limited ability, or to do what you've been going through, Donovan, which is that they can do a nerve reimplantation. So you can take some of the intact nerve tissue and you can plug it into the right place in the spinal cord. And then the motor nerves, which are in that part of the spinal cord, will grow down the nerve, leave the spinal cord, and then go into the muscle that it supplies. You can also do the reverse, which is where you mobilise the other end of the nerve from one muscle and put it into another muscle, and the motor nerves come into the muscle that you want them to supply. And obviously, when you first do this, then when the brain sends a signal to move muscle X, it actually sees that muscle Y moves. But very quickly, because the brain is what's called plastic, the connections which run these circuits can be rewired very, very quickly, especially in young kiddies. You rewire the system so that the connections are weakened for uh, the old status quo and they're strengthened for the new status quo. And so you can learn to make movements, even though you would originally have moved, say, five fingers with that nerve, now you're moving your elbow, you very quickly learn that that's the case and the brain just rewires itself. It's an amazing thing. Right, does that answer your question, Donovan? Absolutely, it's really okay. remarkable. Wonderful. Amazing. Thank you, thank Wonderful. you. Thank you. Uh, Edward in Alberton, hi. Uh, good morning. I want to know on what average, uh, what average does a um, human brain degenerate or uh, sort of atrophies it, uh, yeah. So how fast does the human brain clap out? Is that a reasonable mm. summary of the question? Yes. Okay. Well, it varies from one person to the next, and some people are very lucky that they get towards the end of their life at, say, age 100, and they're relatively cognitively intact. In other words, that, that, that they know who they are, they remember their name, that they still get a reasonable night's sleep and they can still do a crossword. And I've had patients in their late 90s in hospital who have been sitting there doing cryptic crosswords in, in, in the newspaper in the mornings when I've come to see them. Other people 40 years younger than them I've seen with very advanced uh, states of dementia. So it very much varies on the individual and the big determinants are your genetic legacy, do you carry genes that give you a low or high risk of getting a, a dementia or your brain wearing out? And then the environment, because people who smoke and if you drink too much alcohol and if you eat a poor diet or you have other risk factors like diabetes, these things can also all damage the nervous system and they therefore prune away nerve cells and that leads to a more rapid atrophy of the nervous system compared with someone who doesn't have those risk factors. So things you can do something about and things you can't do anything about.
Thank you, Edward. Sandy Martin, stay on the line. There are also some lovely tweets. I'll read them when we return. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. Right, our lines are open for you. It's 14 minutes to 10 o'clock. We have Chris chatting to us on 021-446-0567, Here's a tweet from JT. JT wants to know, what is the difference between a, a spider poison and snake poison? Hello, JT. Well, the answer is not very much because both of them are cocktails or mixtures of proteins which are small molecules that are common in nature you make them by linking together other small molecules called amino acids and the spiders and snakes both use venom glands to produce this mixture of proteins they keep them in specialized sacs so that they don't get into the animal's own circulation until uh, they they want to deploy them and they're both envenomated, they're both injected into a target organism by biting. And in the case of a snake, straight down the fangs, and in the case of a spider, it uses its mandibles, which pierce the either the carapace or the skin or whatever of the thing they're biting, and the venom then goes in. And usually these venoms are, as I say, a cocktail of molecules, which do a range of different things in the body. They usually are nerve toxins, and they very quickly immobilize the nervous system, the idea being that you will paralyze a prey. And they often also cause sedation to stop a prey escaping. That's part of the nerve paralyze process. And in many cases, they also cause tissue to break down. And this means that uh, usually what they do is to punch holes in the walls of cells or they stop cells working metabolically so that the cells just swell up and die. And there's a range of reasons why they might work like that. Probably they, they have this enormous amount of overkill because it gives them access to a very broad range of different targets. Because spiders and snakes don't just feed on one thing. And if they only had one type of venom, then they'd only be able to eat that one thing. And if that one thing were to mutate or change so that they were no longer sensitive to the venom, then the spider or the snake would go hungry. Whereas if they use a whole range of different venom molecules all mixed together, then it's very likely that whatever they bite is going to die or is going to be paralysed and therefore the animal will get eaten. Um, and also it's much harder for that about uh, target animal to mutate or change to become insensitive to the venom over time. Thank you very much, uh, JT, who came in first. Let's go to um, da, 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 Martin in Craig Hall. Hi. Hi, Reedy. Mm. Uh, hi, Chris. Um, I get periodically some of these um, adverts coming through for devices which will save fuel in the car by various methods, but usually seems to change the airflow to the engine or something like that. And I wondered if you've got a view as to whether... You know, there's a lot of inefficiency in the way that cars burn fuel, which would allow something like that to pop into the system and create an improvement. The the engineers who seem to comment on these things say the verdict's out, but the people who sell them say they've proven it on long-distance journeys and so on. What does the science say? Hello, Martin. Very interesting question. The answer is if you take a modern-day engine... These are optimised to within a nanometer of their lives. 
And if you look at what sorts of fuel efficiencies modern-day diesel engines they're putting into family cars are returning, it's absolutely amazing compared with what we were doing 20 years ago. But that has come at a huge cost to the manufacturer who has spent enormous amounts of money, effort and technology to optimise these engines because at the end of the day there are now strong tax incentives in many countries to get the emissions of engines down and the mileage up and also for the manufacturers to be able to use it as a selling point. This is the most efficient engine on the market. Now if it was as simple as a gadget that you could buy over the internet, bolt it onto your air filter and you would return 20 miles to the gallon further, every manufacturer would be fitting them as standard. So there are obviously very good reasons either that whilst you might get a short-term benefit if there is one, I doubt it, but if there were one, it may also cost you engine life and engine wear and when you take the carbon equation into account, well if the engine claps out after say a thousand kilometres instead of a hundred thousand kilometres, oh dear, now we've got to have a new engine. What's the cost environmentally and in terms of carbon of making a new engine? When you take all that into account, I think that engines we're running these days are about as optimised as they can do. And, and every year there are tiny incremental improvements, but nothing dramatic like these gadgets seem to claim. So I'd save you money. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Beggy in Pretoria, hi. Hi, Reddy. Thanks for taking my call. Mine is really quick. My boy developed something that the doctors call a ganglion on the hand, and they've all suggested cutting it out, but they don't know what causes it and so i really wanted to know what causes it but also whether it's really a, a good recommendation to have a solution for something that you don't know what caused it in the first place ganglion cyst i imagine okay hello Peggy. Mm -hmm. well the answer with the ganglion the i don't know have you ever heard the phrase bible basher <laughs> no <laughs> well this is uh, a phrase that sort of does the rounds Th this is where um, you usually use it, actually, to describe someone who's extremely uh, keen on their religious views. But actually, it has a historical meaning, which is that usually, historically, the biggest book in the house was the Bible. Mm. And in, when you have a ganglion, one way to deal with it is it's effectively a little bag of fluid uh, around a structure. And if you smash it hard with the Bible, people found about a hundred years ago, then the fluid comes out and the ganglion goes away. And so Bible bashing, usually you went to someone who had a big Bible and they would hit your hand and squish the ganglion, all the fluid would come out and in, into the local tissues and the, the sort of jelly-like stuff that's in there, and then everyone would be happy. Uh, these days, we don't use Bibles, we use scalpels, and it's a very safe, simple procedure to cut down over the structure and you just release the fluid because it's just inflammatory fluid. It's where some friction has built up over the over the structure, or, or in some cases there are different types of ganglia. You, the usual ganglion you get is on a tendon, but you can also get these inflammatory ganglia around nerves. They they depending on what the course is, you would treat it differently. But you normally can cut down over them and remove the inflammatory material that's built up that to soften whatever the problem is, and then it goes away. So if if it's one of those things, then it's very simple to resolve. Okay, good luck to you, Beggy. Mike in Vatterkloof, hi. Hi, good morning, Lydia. Mm. Um, thanks for allowing my question. I've just got this uh, question regarding random numbers, and if they, are, if they are really random, if they are generated on computers and not uh, just uh, infinite mathematical sequences of numbers. Hello, Mike. Yes, the, the, the argument put forward here is that if a machine which is running on a certain code makes a number selection, even if you think it's random, is it really random? Is that sort of the thrust of your question? 
Yes, yes. And the answer is very, very difficult, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Although I think people are very satisfied that the random number generators that are used are really random. How exactly you, you do that with a computer, I don't know. How you prove that uh, this is really generating random numbers, I don't know. I think I'd like to have that as homework, because I think that's an excellent question, is how you take something that's following a program and built with a specific rigid specification, how does it generate a random number, and how do we prove that it's really random? There's a guy I have lunch with occasionally who's professor of maths at Cambridge University, and if I see him today or tomorrow, I will get my phone out and, and ask him to record uh, a brief answer. And if Trevor's listening, I have still got the answer on ear bits of skin, which he asked me to get. Um, but it, it's just in a funny audio format that I can't make play. Oh. I have to bu- I get a filter for my... I have to get a, an audio filter so we can decode the audio bit rate that's in this thing. But I will do that for you, Mike. I'll see if I can find out um, what the proof is that a number really is random. And, and I'll come back to you in a week or so, if that's okay. I can't wait for that. Fascinating. Here's an SMS here. Uh, really, my husband and I are debating on circumcising our baby boy who will be born in September. I want to do it when he's three days old, but he wants to wait till he's 12 years old um, to not limit the size of his penis. Is there any truth to that? Uh, no, it's much better done early. Um, maybe maybe a week or so, or maybe up to a month after the boy, baby's born, it, it would be much better to do it early rather than when they get a bit older. Because when you do it early, then the rate of healing is far faster, only takes a few days, and there's no anaesthetic needed in terms of general anaesthetic. You can just use local anaesthetic, which completely numbs the area, and it's very, very quick to do, only takes a matter of a few minutes. Whereas if you wait until you're 12, then usually it's a general anaesthetic and you have to have stitches and it can take maybe three weeks for everything to heal up. So it's much better to to get it done uh, probably within a week or so of the baby being born. And congratulations. It definitely won't. It definitely won't cause any manhood size problems. <laughs> That's a really <laughs> <laughs> circumcised problems. It's a big. It's a big <laughs> issue that one. Are, yeah, it's a big issue. Yeah, no, there's there's definitely no impact on size. Thank you very much, Chris, and congratulations to the parents to be having a baby in September. Chris, lovely questions I thought today, and we look forward to the uh, the, the decoded answer next week or whenever you get around it, whenever you're able. I to. should do my best. I and, know uh, you. Will. No, no promises, but I will. I will go and find my maths friends, and I will try and record them on my phone. Oh, and, yeah, that's uh, so a lot of work. Scratchy audio. I don't know, but it's fun, isn't it? Because it's, if it's a question, I, I don't know how you how you prove. Because this is the key thing. It's one thing to generate a number that looks random. How do you prove Truth. it so a mathematician is happy with that proof? And if obviously anyone listening to this as a podcast or, or on the on the program knows the answer and would also like to contribute, I would love to hear the answer to that one, please. To be great. Thanks, Chris. Thank you so much. Chat to you next week. See you soon, Reedy. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Chris works very hard for us. You know, the show doesn't end here. He generally goes behind the scenes, tries to find the answers, and of course, we love it. So uh, next week, or whenever he's able to get his uh, his, his his way around it, the random un- uh, numbers um, answer. Don't forget that this too will be available as a podcast. Simply go onto our website and download it for yourself. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk 
forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.